Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ilan, what's up, dude? How are you doing? I'm doing all right, you know. Yeah, life's life's you know, it's it's strange at the moment and things have obviously been better, but all things considered, personally, uh, I'm doing all right. I'm in a good place. Good place mentally, good place physically, and uh yeah, I'm doing all right, man. What about you? Um, same same here, honestly. I was about to say I'm glad to hear that you're doing well, but yeah, um obviously we're living in strange times, but uh you know, fortunately, I'm healthy, and the sort of solitude or quarantine really kind of works with my personality, so I can't complain too much. You- I will be relieved when uh, touring starts getting back to normal, but in the meantime, I'm, I'm hanging in there just fine. So you're quite, obviously, you know, you make your living touring and recording and, you know, kind of playing in so many different projects, so you're very much you know, entrenched in the live side of music as well as the studio. But are you kind of like a home bod then? Do you quite like a little bit of, of downtime, <clears throat> family time, alone time? Absolutely. I mean, I honestly swing the pendulum from one side to the other. I'm either gone constantly and touring nonstop or I'm at home it's still working on music. I mean, I love being in the studio and, and writing and recording and learning new things. But yeah, it's one extreme to the other. So... I haven't had any issues with um, being reclusive. I just think that's really the way my personality is anyway. 
So, uh, like, you know, like I always say, I, I feel bad for the extroverts out there who are having a hard time needing to kind of stay indoors and, and find other ways to entertain themselves. But, you know, fortunately, it's definitely not an issue for me. Well, that's me, dude. That's very much me. Like, I'm so used to being on the road quite a lot myself because I DJ and I have residencies in the city, but then I also go on the road with bands and play sets between bands in package bills and also i'm used to doing these face to face as well and i'm very much like i'm a social butterfly i'm always out yeah. i'm always with people i'm not in a relationship or anything so i kind of live alone and yeah i found the first three to four months man was so so tough thankfully i've been super busy and productive and i've managed to keep those demons at bay by staying preoccupied and distracted but it's definitely hit me like that thought that you know there's going to be so many friends that i don't get to see in person Mm -hmm. for god knows how long i saw on um instagram though recently that you you got engaged during i did this lockdown madness i mean congratulations first of all dude that's awesome thank you very much i appreciate it yeah i mean (laughs) i Another reason to say that I've been making the most of, of this whole uh, weird situation. But yeah, it's been it's been really good, and uh, my fiance and I are having a great time. And yeah, thank you. And you had your birthday recently as well, and I had my birthday right in March, which was oh, there you go. It was the week before all of this kicked off, so I kind of got a last hurrah in there. I managed to have a nice party and saw loads of friends. What was your lockdown birthday like? How is a lockdown birthday? Uh, it was a, okay. I mean, I live in San Diego. I mean, I live in LA, but I was born and raised in San Diego. So for my birthday, I went down to San Diego to visit the family and we just had dinner at home as opposed to going out somewhere. So it really wasn't, uh, well, it wasn't a huge change. I mean, oddly enough, I'm one of those people and you're totally going to disagree with this as well from what I can already (laughs) gather, but I'm one of those people who doesn't like to really celebrate the birthday for me? It's like, oh, this is another marker in time. Times are moving quickly, getting older, things are getting farther away. And, uh, you know, I know that's a pretty depressing outlook, but it's all relative. If I'm having a good year and I'm feeling good about everything, then the birthday's okay. If things haven't been as productive as I would have liked, I get that feeling of time slipping through my fingers. It sounds but, like- um, Go on. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, but, you know, all, all, all things said, healthy, got to hang out with the family and, and enjoy myself. So all in all, it was, it was a good birthday. I was going to say, it sounds like you've got a pretty good read on me already, Alan. <laughs> and yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, can, I just got that vibe, you know, I'm like, <laughs> when you told me that you had your birthday in March, I'm like, oh, for his sake, I hope it was before. And you said exactly what I thought, that it was going to be one last hurrah so good for you i love it i always i always rinse and milk my birthdays for about two weeks because i'm very much of the opinion that life is what you make it and for me getting old has actually been quite an enjoyable process and it's interesting talking about age with someone like you because you've obviously packed in so much like what you've done even by the time you were 21 uh, you know, some people wouldn't get to achieve half those things in an entire lifetime's work of music. Um, is that something that drives you? Like, what does drive you to be such a proactive, productive, hardworking? Like, where does that work ethic come from, do you think? Is it the impending sense that time's always slipping away and you've got to make the most of it? Or would you remember when that first began and where it came mm-hmm. from? Well, that sense of impending doom 
due to time slipping away. That hit me. I very distinctly recall that sensation hitting me on my 16th birthday. And I know that sounds absurd, but I can, I can pinpoint it just because at that point in time, the warp tour had come around to San Diego and I didn't really have any interest in going myself, but a bunch of friends from school were going and I was already touring for a couple of years at that point. So I figured I'll just go with my friends and spend some time with them. I haven't seen them in a while, but I mean, it, it, this sounds funny, and I'm and I'm not unaware of of the comedy or how ridiculous this sounds. But <laughs> at that time, I had been in my second band already that was signed and dropped from Universal Records within I, I want to say nine months. It could have been even sooner. I don't really remember. But so I was at this warp tour, watching one horrible band after another, and thinking, "Oh my God, it's my it's my sixteenth birthday." second band hasn't worked out. I know that I'm good enough to do what I want to do, but I, I got to figure it out. I got, I, I got to get my, my life underway. And that's what I was thinking on my 16th birthday. And, uh, you know, fortunately things have changed since then, but the idea that time is constantly ticking is definitely something that drives me. I wouldn't say it's the, the primary factor. I mean, it's certainly a factor when things aren't progressing as quickly as I think they should. Um, I'm a very patient person, but when it comes to business and my career, I'm fairly impatient. So that is one factor. And one thing that I can't deny is the obsessive component in the way I see things. I mean, I'm constantly working on things, trying to improve things, and I just can't let things go. So if I have, say, a goal in my mind of needing to accomplish something or finish an album by... Oh, are you there, dude? That you or me? Yeah, that, I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but um, <laughs> you definitely cut out abruptly. Um, but you, ah, the, the words that were leaving your mouth as it did was you were talking about accomplishing something. So I, I, I have a very obsessive personality. So if I set a goal in mind of needing to finish album or write a certain amount of songs, I obsess over that goal until it's complete. And a big part of that is the very refreshing feeling of starting the next thing, mm. you know? So the way I try to describe that is we already discussed how I'm either spending all my time on the road or all my time at home. There's kind of no middle ground, but being at home opens itself up to a whole other world of productivity, more, more so writing and recording and, you know, learning new instruments, new production techniques, whatever it may be. So when I get home from touring, the last thing I'm thinking about is great. I get to have a break and just stay at home and relax because that's not what excites me. You know, I can relax in an hour or two and, and I just feel rejuvenated and, and ready to go. And um, yeah, so I look at the ending of the tour, which could be months at a time is the new beginning of whatever my next goal or chunk of music that I've set aside for myself to be. So I just, I, I really kind of probably over compartmentalize everything, but that's just the way I see everything. I got to set one thing up and knock it down so that I can set up the next thing and knock it down. It's interesting for me. I think there's, there's almost like two different camps of people in life. There's people who like work 
just to work to make the money and then they're always living and waiting for the weekend and for that holiday and for the break and then there's other people like definitely you and also definitely me who live to work because like the work is what provides you with the joy and the sense of accomplishment and fulfillment and excitement and rewards like are you very much that dude i know i am like everything that i do professionally feeds so much into my soul and my heart and my life and for me the joy in life is work because i love doing what i do so much and take great pride in it absolutely you and i are certainly very alike in that sense and uh, people often ask me okay so what what do you do when you're not doing music what are your hobbies and as boring as it may sound i still spend 98 percent of my time doing something musical whether it's learning a new instrument, playing around with new plugins, exploring different software, whatever it may be, reading about music. I mean, there's, there's so many different facets of what it is that I love that I can remain entertained and just constantly searching for more. You know, I mean, I do have the occasional other hobby that, that, that fills up my time, but it's never, I need to get away from music to do these other things. I mean, music certainly satisfies me almost entirely. So that's always where, where I've got my mind at. Where did the inspiration come from when you were growing up? Because obviously you started so, so young. Was it from your parents? Was it from your older brothers? Where did that fascination in music and playing and, and creating begin? Well, it, was pro- it was probably a combination of the two. And I say that because I am the youngest of, of three boys. So my older brothers had already started dabbling with music before I knew what was going on, but they were dabbling with music on my dad's drums. He was a musician when he was in high school and he obviously brought music into the house. And like I said, they had gotten into it before I was even aware of it, but taking notice of the drums in the garage and watching them, you know, give it a good whack and and play around with it. I thought I can do that too. (laughs) So I started playing, but it was my dad really noticing that I actually had rhythm and I wasn't just making noise on them. So once he started teaching me uh, a fill here or there, I mean, I, I very remember, I very distinctly remember him sitting down, uh, my middle brother and I, Danny and myself, and he taught us both our first fill, which was the, when Ringo comes into, I am the walrus. And uh, that was the first drum lesson. And then once I was able to just connect the dots between either listening and replicating myself or watching and replicating it myself, then that obsession really started. And he would teach me things. I would spend time practicing them in the garage and then calling him to come back in and make sure I was doing things right. And when he turned me on to Led Zeppelin, I was just uh, blown away, still am to this point in time and will be for the rest of my life, no doubt. But really being able to listen to something and replicate it myself that just started this cycle of uh, an obsessive fascination. It's like, ooh, I love that, and now I'm going to play that myself. Great, I got that. What's the next thing that I want to learn? And I just tore apart that entire catalog. I mean, that that's just that's how I really progressed as quickly as I did so early on. Is John so, I mean, Bonham your guy then, is he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, since I was 
eight years old. I mean, by the time I was nine, I, I recall wanting long hair and a mustache. And obviously that was physically, <laughs> that was physically impossible. I, I mean, I can hardly grow a mustache now, but <laughs> I mean, the obsession goes that far back. I mean, it's something that is just in my DNA at this point and has been ever since. What's, but, his, what's um, his crowning yeah. moment for you, Alan? What would be like your, your pick of like the ultimate showcase of his talent and skill? One song. Oh, uh, it really is difficult. I mean, if I had to look, if you had to say which is the one song that really sums it up, I would have to go with Good Times, Bad Times for two reasons. Actually, let's go with three reasons. I mean, it's just got a great groove through it. Of course, it's got the bass drum triplets that he's famous for, but it also has the the feel of the triplet fills around the drum set, which is obviously a big part of his style. So I think that really kind of sums up not all of him because i mean he's got so had so much to offer but uh, it's pretty amazing to think that if i had to sum him up as maybe a crowning achievement that it's song one on album one i mean i think that really makes a statement in itself i love it you yeah. know when you've perfected it but, just right uh, at the start it's just there from the get-go bang yeah it, it it hits you in the face i mean but um I mean, we can get in the bottom later if you'd like, but I just feel like if I start running my mouth right now, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> well, here's something I'd love to ask you, because Bonham, obviously, as well as being a complete virtuoso powerhouse of a performer and an amazing mm. musician, he was obviously also a notorious Hellraiser. And I, rec yeah. I recently reread the No Effect book because they're one of my favorite bands. And just the level of like debauchery and hedonism and chaos that's always surrounded mm -hmm. that band. And I believe you filled in for them once at the age of the tender age of 11. Is that right? Back in the Warp Tour days when you were starting out with your brother's band. Um, like, did that side of, of rock and roll ever, ever appeal to you in any way or were you just totally focused on the craft and the performance and all of that was just for you like background unnecessary noise i'm talking about Honest, like, boozing and drugs yeah. and all that oh no i that was completely alien to me i was focused on on playing and just being as good as i could um i will correct you just slightly that would have been around 13 maybe just i mean within days of turning 14 years old and i remember that that was a stint on the warp tour that was the summer before i started the eighth grade right so i wow. that's the just the, i just remember that period in, in life fairly distinctly and um well what a time yeah, to be I mean, a teenager was, in your case like they're the years really yeah. aren't you when you're just getting into that world and and you're literally in it you're not in the crowd you're on the stage yeah and what's funny about it is at that point in time that's when kids kind of start going to shows and that becomes part of their social life. But I never really talked about it. I, I certainly, I don't know. I suppose I was just overly modest and shy. So it's not something I talked about. I was like, Oh, you guys were going to warp tour. I've already played warp tour. I just never even discussed it, you know, but I always thought it funny that for a lot of kids, I'm sure all over the place going to a show like that or a festival like that was, almost a, a highlight of the, the year, certainly the summer in a sense. And by the time I'd done that, it was kind of my, I think it was my third and last go around. I mean, I never did the entire tour. It was always, you know, the first time we did it was just one show in San Diego. Then the following year. And I think the year 2000 was probably a week, a week and a half or so. And then the stint we're talking about was about a good three weeks, but for a 13 year old, I mean, it's definitely a good way to kind of, get broken into 
touring and, and playing day after day. And, and the warp tour is a, a hellhole in the way. I mean, when you think about it logistically and just how the types of places you're playing, I mean, it's, it's always fun to play, but I mean, any festival that travels like that day in, day out, you can imagine it's just a disaster in terms of making it all work. So I commend their whole staff for having pulled it off for as long as they did. But, um, I digress. So Eric Sandin and I had known each other. I mean, which is funny to say, cause I think I met him when I was about 11 years old. <laughs> so when I saw him, I when I saw him a couple of years later. I don't know what it was specifically, but he had to bow out for a show. I think he had to attend a funeral or something like that. And he went around asking drummers who he was friendly with, if they could fill in so that they wouldn't have to cancel the show. So he kind of just went to everybody said, guys, please pick two songs and that'll cover the set and I'll be back. So, um, I mean, it is a bit of a blur at this point, but, um, of I know course, I, did, I mean, my memory, I I my did, memory for that time isn't great either. And you know, it's kind of, yeah. it's so long ago I mean, for you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was two songs. It was sticking in my eye and bottles to the ground. I, I know that for sure. I don't know which albums they're on or anything like that, but it was a great time playing those songs and it's funny because i've run into at least a couple of those guys somewhat recently um like melvin for example I, I, he lives in san diego so when angels and airwaves played uh when we played our first show in who knows how many years in san diego he was there and it's just one of those things that comes up in in conversation i guess but uh yeah where did you dig that one up from well, it's it's just interesting to me reading about your life because musically you don't strike me as somebody that, you know, I mean, like Tom DeLonge is a great example. You just mentioned him there. You're obviously in Angels and Airways with him. You seem to come from such different musical backgrounds to me, and I find it fascinating that you, you know, operate within the same worlds, like they meet in the middle, I guess. And obviously San Diego is the home of Blink-182. It's where you're from. Is that where you were first aware of Blink-182, is like on the local music scene? Where does that relationship with Tom begin? Well, the relationship with Tom and the awareness of them as a band are two completely different things. I mean, as I said, um, being the youngest of three, I mean, that would put my older brothers in high school when I was still in elementary school. So whatever was going on at the time, whether it be something like No Effects or something like Blink-182, that was what they were either into at the time or their friends were into at the time. And, uh, I mean, Blink obviously was and is massive, so that just seeped its way into into pop culture. But I really didn't take an interest in Blink until Aaron, my, my oldest brother Aaron, he pointed out their new drummer at the time, who was a really good drummer. So... Uh, and obviously I'm talking about Travis. Yep. So that was the only reason why I ever sat down to even listen to that band, just because I, I heard that Travis was a great drummer. And of course he was. And um, I'm sure you're aware. I mean, if you, if you dug up the, the no effects story, I'm sure you're aware that I did end up taking lessons from Travis around the same time when I was a kid. I know. And, I, I was uh, kind of not going to ask you about that because I thought that's probably something you get asked about all the time. But now you've brought it up, yeah. we've, we've got to go in on it. And what, a, again, yeah. a fascinating tidbit of Alain Ruben mythology. Um, he sees yeah. you performing, right? And he's impressed by your skills. And, and then he sends no. someone over oh, to well, talk to your parents to offer for lessons. Like, is that how it goes down? 
Not quite. I mean, somebody who worked with the band at the time saw me play at the Warp Tour. I mean, that's a very you know popular part of our conversation thus far. But, uh, <laughs> we'll get past me, it soon. Don't worry. Play. Ah, no worries, no worries. But uh, at that time, I was either ten or eleven years old, and he saw me play, and he noticed um, an older couple in the crowd. I mean, given the the age difference between people in their teens and my parents, <laughs> so he put it together that they were my parents. And, um, I suppose asked them, uh, about me, you know, obviously verifying that they were indeed my parents and asked them if, I mean, I, like I said, I mean, this is even blurrier than the no effects thing, but, um, he either came up to me and asked me if I, if I knew of Travis Barker or he asked my parents or, or whatever it was, but, um, turned out that the guy was legitimate and told my dad that Travis gives drum lessons on his off time and that he's sure that Travis would love to teach me because he likes giving drum lessons, especially to young kids who are really passionate about the instrument. And it really started like that. It was a complete uh, fluke or coincidence. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, my my dad took him up on that and called him. And then before he knew that, I had a, a lesson scheduled. So. We did lessons weekly for a decent amount of time, but you got to think this was off time and this was probably year 2000, 2001. So not only was Blink already massive, but they were doing Boxcar Racer and all these other things at the time. So really, he fit in drum lessons when he was at home for a decent amount of time. So that probably continued for at least... um, Maybe a couple years, but but very intermittently. Um, you know, I could have a lesson or two in succession, and then I wouldn't see the guy for eight months. You know, whatever it was. And what's really funny to me is that I hadn't seen him for years and years and years until I joined Angels and Airwaves. Right. So it was just a funny, funny thing. You know, then being the drummer in Tom's band, and then because of that. Him and I saw each other. I mean, that was the last time I saw him. That was years ago. I mean, I probably haven't seen him or talked to him in about, uh, I don't know, eight years maybe. Wow. But um, we're obviously uh, aware of what each other are doing. I mean, everyone's aware of what he's up to, but we obviously have mutual friends. And yeah, so it was a good thing. But um, definitely learned a lot from him. I was very impressed with what a trained guy he was. And I mean, it's, it's obvious why he kind of stuck out in Blink-182 because you could tell that he was a, a trained musician. And when you think about what I learned at those lessons, I mean, we would spend half the lesson at the pad doing rudiments and sight-reading snare charts. And then we'd spend the second half at the drum set either going between a book called The Funky Primer or Jim Chapin's Advanced Techniques for Jazz Drummers. And that was that. And you wouldn't necessarily assume that a guy covered in tattoos from a pop-punk band is is so into that kind of, of study. But, you know, the guy is clearly obsessed with playing drums and has been for who knows how long. So it was definitely a great experience to see that and learn from that when I was a kid. 
Yeah, they're a unique trio. When they first came out, they all seemed like they were like kind of the same personality into the same things. And then as time mm-hmm. evolved, obviously their different personalities came out more. And I think now, like obviously Tom's not in the band anymore, but now I don't think you could have three different guys than those three. Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah. amazing how that panned out. But like, um, yeah, so Tom and yourself, where does that friendship and collaborative relationship begin? So we have a um, mutual friend who is now actually managing Angel Airwaves, but at the time he was just a friend of Tom's and he was a friend of my brother Aaron's. And I think he put the pieces together because for one reason or another in around 2012, Adam Willard, who I'm friends with to this day, uh, was no longer a part of the band for who knows what reason I wasn't really privy to that information, but, um, it just seemed to make sense. Tom and I got on the phone and, and talked a lot and obviously both being from San Diego, I still lived there at the time. It just seemed like a good fit. And it was an especially good fit because at that point, Tom was looking for somebody to have more of an input as a writer. I don't know if he felt like perhaps he was, feeling a bit uh, repetitious or he wanted to just do something pretty different. But I recall in that initial conversation, because he mentioned my solo project, The New Regime. And uh, I told him, I'm like, hey, just want you to know that just because I have my own thing where I write, play, and sing everything, that doesn't mean that I intend to join this band and try to put my stamp on everything. I mean, I'm used to being the guy who just plays drums. And he said, no, 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 that's exactly why I want you, because you can bring something else to the table, whether it's on guitar or piano or whatever it may be. And I think that's where his interest in me came from initially. And um, it definitely seems to have worked out. And uh, there was, I mean, you mentioned something earlier about him and I coming from two different worlds, and that could not be any more true. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's it's funny, but him and I did have a mutual learning curve that we had to, um, you know, come to terms with because we were just communicating differently, or it was just very very odd. And we kind of found out we found the way to best work together, which is he brings his song or ideas to the table. And then I pull them in my direction. He pulls them in his direction. And then by the, the time the song's done, it's somewhere else. But um, it's just really funny because he's got this thing where he clues into music in a way that I don't naturally listen to music as. And what I mean by that is, for example, he can reference something that to me makes zero sense. Right. He'll say like, hey, I've got this idea. It's kind of like Pink Floyd. And I'm like, and then he'll play it and it sounds like him. And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean this sounds Pink Floyd? He's like, well, it just kind of gives you this feeling of this and that. And he'll kind of, he'll describe an emotion or something. And I'll be like, oh, so you don't actually mean like a seventh E minor slow jams with who knows what he's cluing into something else. But to him, that gives him some sort of vibe that only he's honing in on. So there were a lot of, conversations we've had where I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. Cause when you say one thing, I think one thing, but you mean something else. So once we were able to decipher each other and, and figure out the best way to work, we were able to kind of get the dream Walker together 
And we really kind of did that down the middle and it was a good experience. And it was also an interesting point in time because it took us so long to do it because he was still in bling at the time and I was in the middle of a nine inch nail cycle. So we could only work when we were both in town at the same time. But, um, ever since then we've kind of just understood the way things work best between us in the studio and we've remained, uh, fairly productive, I'd say. It sounds like the dream partnership because, as you say, he's like the vibe guy. He's coming from an emotional place, and then you're obviously mm-hmm. a very technical guy. And I think together you marry those two. And obviously that record that you did with him, I think it sounded very different from anything else he'd done before in that project or otherwise, right? Because mm-hmm. it is that amalgamation of your two styles coming together and i listened to that record again today in the lead up to this chat and it's got some amazing stuff on there like the wolf pack is a song i really enjoy kiss with a spell bullets in the wind like there's some really interesting songs on there that are obviously distinctly tom because his voice is so you know just Mm -hmm. unique but then musically there's this whole like plateau underneath it which is again it's very distinct and different to what we at that point in time to what we were used to from him did it go over well at the time do you remember and like did you have fun creating with him and and making that record together yeah we definitely had some mutual frustration to begin with like i said when we were figuring out how to best work together but uh, once that was figured out it was very smooth sailing and and it has been since and I have to say, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm I'm hyping something because I, I hate when, you know, it's mentioned that something new is coming out and there's no date or whatever. But I will say that all the music that we have been working on for this next album or whatever it's going to be, obviously, with COVID flipping everything on its head and yeah. release schedules and how all that works, you know, I don't have a date, but I've obviously been a part of all the music and I think that people will be very impressed by it and i think they'll enjoy it well there's a few tracks up already which i've been loving rebel girl kiss and tell and what was the third one all that's left is love they're the three right are they all going to be on the record i don't even know to be honest <laughs> with you. i mean they, they, they've been out so long at this point or yeah. i mean at least a year so um well i'm talking about the original two but uh so i i really don't know but i know we definitely have an album's worth of material regardless you know, but it's been um, it's definitely been a good it's a good batch of songs and I, I'll be excited when they come out. I think people will enjoy them and, and be surprised. Talk to me about your friendship with Tom Alan. He's a, he's a very unique dude, very interesting, very funny, very creative, um, very controversial Certainly. in some ways. And <laughs> like when he was on Joe Rogan, man, I thought Joe Rogan was a bit of a prick. To be honest, I thought I, com- I completely agree with you. I thought he was a bit disrespectful and flippant. And you know, I'm not the biggest Joe Rogan fan anyway. I'm more of a Mark Maron guy myself. But he, <laughs> you know, he obviously speaks what he feels and, and believes in his heart to be true. And he puts himself out there in that way. Do you have many conversations with him about his beliefs and about the world? And do you get into all of that stuff, spirituality in the universe? And you know, do you have deep conversations with him? We often get into conversations where I think to myself, if anybody heard this conversation, they would think we were both insane. (laughs) And um, I'm just fascinated by the amount of research that he does, the people he is associated with, and 
that brings a tremendous amount of credibility to the table. I mean, he's associating himself and involving himself with people who are brilliant and have uh, very impressive careers in their respective fields. So you kind of got to listen to the guy and think, whether this sounds outlandish or not, it's not like he's some crackpot in his basement with a wire with, with an internet connection. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And I felt very good for him when given Joe Rogan being a bit of a dick to him on his podcast, once the Navy came out and said that those videos were indeed real and that they couldn't verify what was in those videos, I'm like, there you go. And I strongly feel that that guy owes him an apology. And for what it's worth, you know, and I, I will admit, I didn't sit there and watch the entire interview. But what I did see that irritated me was his exchange with Travis at some point after yeah. where he was kind of talking to Travis about this guy's clearly nuts. Don't you think so? I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing. I can't quote him. It's been a while, but um, kind of just in a way trying to bait Travis into calling Tom nuts and saying how he couldn't believe that Tom believed this sort of thing. So, as I said, when the Navy came out and verified that specific video, I'm like, well, there you go. And I hope there's a shred of um, feeling kind of stupid about it, or at least shitty in a sense, because obviously the guy's devoted uh, a very big portion of his life to, uh, certainly in recent years, to these endeavors. It's uh, worthy of nothing but respect, and I think he's done great things, and I think he'll continue to do so. But uh, whether you believe in it or not, it's impressive. And at the very least, it's interesting. You know, I, uh, I, I personally like to read about all of these things, certainly not as in-depth as he does, but it's entertaining. It's, it's fascinating. And um, I think everything's worth a shot. I mean, to think that we all have everything figured out and there's no room for any sort of alternate perspective or possibility is extremely ignorant and arrogant and human beings are very good at um, furthering both of those qualities beyond just the music like obviously all the other stuff that he does creatively as well whether it's comics or novels or films or or all the rest of it mm. what's your take on on tom as like a creative outside of music like what you see him doing what what do you kind of think when you look at him doing that what goes through your head like wow this guy because he's clearly such a creative dude what do you think it is uh -huh. that makes him unique in that world um uh, i think he constantly likes to be on the go and creating things. So, I mean, I, I know that obviously sounds very obvious, but the guy just likes to be on the move, whether it's writing music, whether it's being involved with some sort of film, whether it's writing a book or getting in touch with these other people. He likes um, constant output. And I think that's what gets him going. I think that's what keeps him sane. I mean, I think at this point in his life, the idea of focusing on one thing at a time would probably put him in an asylum. You know, I think doing so many different things is what kind of keeps him balanced. And obviously it's been working great for him. And obviously it's not your place to say, but it seems from the outside looking in like everything in the Blink-182 camp is cool in the sense that there's no bad blood there. Like, so the decision to leave was clearly just like a personal creative thing on his part. And he was like, I'm just going to go over here and do this other stuff. And like I said, it's obviously not your place to say, but it does seem like, you know, that there's no ill feelings towards any of the members within that band. 
Yeah, I mean, that very well could be. We we honestly don't talk about Blink that much, if if hardly ever. You right. know, I mean, every now and then things will come up, but they're obviously doing their own thing and he's doing his own thing. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, who knows what's to come down the line. But um, like I said, I mean, they're, yeah, they do seem to have everything underway and everything's amicable, but I really don't have any any insight to that, honestly. Well, that's cool. So one thing that I think would be safe to say with people like you, and I spoke to my, my friend Joey Castillo about this as well, oh, yeah? like when you're a session drummer, or any musician really, but particularly I think when you're a session drummer, you float from quite different projects. And I think mm-hmm. a part of being able to do that is being able to adapt to different situations and different personalities and to kind of be one of those people who's sort of cool with everyone um, and, and, you know, can hang with anyone. And to go mm-hmm. from Tom DeLong to Trent Reznor, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a leap in every sense. And, and you obviously do it seamlessly and, and, and easily. Um, I wonder if you could kind of put me in the picture of when Trent first reached out to you and, and you were given that offer to come and was it Jam initially or was the place there for you as like a full member from the get-go? How did that Nine Inch Nails situation first come about? And then we'll, we'll get into the dynamics of it, if that's all right. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I did play with uh, Nine Inch Nails before Angels on Airwaves. So it was, um, even. I mean, I suppose going truly from polar opposites. But um, yeah, I joined Nine Inch Nails when I was 20 uh, in uh, 2009. So I had been playing in a band that was playing just before Nine Inch Nails at uh, Reading and Leeds festivals in 2008, and I was going to ask. Unbeno- I was going to ask why he was watching that particular band um, because yeah. I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't imagine he'd have been a fan of them. But that makes sense. If Nine Inch Nails were following on from them, that makes complete sense. So he saw you playing yeah. with Lost Profits at Reading, and he yeah. was like, "Man, that guy can play." And and it was as simple as that. Was it? He was like, "I need a drummer. You look shit hot. Want to do it?" Well, it it was. Uh, well, what's funny enough? I mean, obviously. You are British, so that is a name I have not mentioned for many years for obvious reasons. Yeah, but you definitely know what's going on there. So it's just funny. I've kind of, I don't know, I've kept that on the down low for obvious reasons. Yeah, but, man. Um, well, listen, Elan, we first met in 2016 at the forum when you were playing with Taking Back Sunday, um, and we did uh-huh. a, we did a chat then, and we kind of briefly touched on it then. And I guess that the general sense that I got was because that was the first big band that you were in although you were doing stuff before that that was like the first time you were playing arenas and yeah and it's just a real shame i guess despite everything horrible that went on like just on a personal Mm -hmm. level for you it must obviously just mean that that entire chapter is kind of just closed in the memory bank what i do have to say and by the way that our meeting that you're talking about must have been 2011 actually or maybe 12 but um it was when you were playing with um taking back sunday on that tour yeah is that as far back as that my god yeah, I know. It's scary. See, time flies and you're like, fuck. <laughs> I'm old. a decade ago. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, look, all things aside, uh, it was obviously a great stepping stone for me. As you mentioned, it was the first time I was playing arenas, playing festivals, and to think that I was honestly my first time ever in the UK and getting to go to Europe and all these other places. So, it definitely, it was a completely different game from that point forward. Yep. And uh, I am very grateful for that. I mean, me being um, 
uh, Led Zeppelin and Queen Nut, and for my fifth show ever in the UK to be at Earl's Court or whatever it was, fifth or sixth show, was like, oh my God, Led Zeppelin played here in 75, Queen played here in 77. I mean, these are the things that were running in my mind at the time, and I was six, 17 maybe, you know? And uh, so yeah, tremendous uh, stepping stone for me career-wise, but a good friend of mine who is actually a business partner of mine in Q Drum Co., which is a, a drum company that we co-own together, he was teching for Nine Inch Nails and had, che- had teched for Jerome Dillon and Josh Fries, and I think he recommended to Trent, hey, my buddy's playing in this band, you should go check it out. I'm right. baffled that he actually went to go do it. I mean, <laughs> having known the guy for 12 years now, I'm shocked. And especially it being a band that couldn't be further from what he's actually into. Yeah. But, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, he was on stage watching and he was there to see me. And it was probably about a year later that I got an email from him saying, Hey, I, it's Trent from Nine Inch Nails here. I'm looking for a drummer. I saw you play last year. Are you interested? And of course I was. And, um, I then, he sent me about eight songs and I flew out to the East coast of the U S while they were touring on the lights in the sky tour. And I auditioned at soundcheck. And, uh, from then on out, I've, I've been the drummer for Nine Inch Nails. So, they obviously closed that run out in uh, 2008. We started rehearsing in probably January of 2009. And then from there on out, I finished that run and I've, I've been with the band ever since. That's amazing. It's, I mean, what an incredible band, what an incredible artist Trent is. Absolutely. Like, how does how does the songwriting in that band work? Is it mainly just Trent and Atticus kind of get the nucleus of the songs together between the two of them and then bring it to the rest of the players to add their own flavor? Like, how does it all work, or does it tend to differ over the years? It's, I mean, I'm sure it differs, but the thing that remains constant is that all of it is the two of them. I right. mean, whether they have people come in for, for bits here and there, they'll obviously ask those people to come in. So... Um, the last time I played on anything, the only, the last time I had to my knowledge, um, real or acoustic drums, I mean, there was some stuff on bad witch and I believe actually Trent did, did the stuff himself, but, um, I'm not exactly sure about that. But the last time I played on a recording for Nine Inch Nails were a couple songs on hesitation marks, right, which right. was 2013 yeah. and, you know, shining example of calling in people for the job, Pino Palladino did bass on that album and did a fantastic job which is why he joined us later that year for a full u.s leg and it was an uh, awesome experience playing with pino but yeah trent and atticus definitely handle all of the material themselves if they need anything that they can't do amongst the two of them they'll call people in i haven't been in the studio with them since hesitation marks but um what's really interesting about that is Considering how detailed and complex the music can be texturally, it's always a reinventive experience bringing those songs to life for the stage. You know, obviously they spend um, a good amount of time getting things the way they want them in the studio. But when you then have four, five, six people, however many it may be, recreating those songs to a degree live, it kind of becomes, 
it becomes its own thing. And I think that's why Nine Inch Nails in particular is a fascinating band because the albums and the live shows are quite drastically different. And it's a different experience. Even them, even listening to the same songs, I mean, whether you're listening to Terrible Lie from Pretty Hate Machine or you're watching it live, it's two different beats. Obviously, they have the same essence, that being Trent. But uh, the lives definitely take on, the songs definitely take on lives of their own live, and uh, it's always a kind of a, a puzzle to put together. You know, how do we maintain the essence, but you know, bring it for the show? So it's always a interesting experience when there's new material to add to the repertoire. I guess with someone like Trent as well, like yourself, probably you probably connect on that level. Is the goal is excellence, right? And there's there's no room for second best. And is that is that Absolutely. something that you both bond over personally and creatively? It must be a trip to be in a band with someone like that as well. If you come from that same approach, which is just like this has to be part excellence, like a hundred percent as good as it can be. Otherwise, what's the point? Let's go home. And and what yeah, and, what an and, intense and it, amazing environment to be working in. Yeah, and and him and I see complete eye to eye on that. And I recall day one stepping into my first rehearsal and playing a few songs thinking finally this is the kind of band that i've been wanting to be a part of because he knows what he wants he knows how to get there and it's his success is certainly no fluke so perfection is the key and precision is is demanded and it's it's great you know i've never had a single issue with the guy my entire time in the band. And I think a lot of that has to do with that same quest for perfection and not wanting to do anything, um, anything but the best it can be done. And considering I show up as prepared as possible, I've never had any, any issues or anything. I mean, it's just kind of a given that that's what's expected. And regardless of what that was expected, that is how I would um, arrive at rehearsal or, or whatever it may be. I mean, that's just the way I am and that's the way he is. So it's it's made for a very good working relationship. And what's great about uh, Nine Inch Nails in particular is that it's been an awesome platform to not just be able to play drums, but to do all these other things. And Trent has never hesitated to kind of exploit my other talents, whether it's having me run to the piano in the middle of a song or paying for me to get some cello lessons to play a couple of bits live or guitar, bass here and there, whatever it may be. He's always throwing something for me to do. And um, it keeps things super exciting. I mean, I can definitely recall having been in other bands where the people were threatened by my other abilities and it was the most ridiculous thing. Mm. But here you have a super accomplished guy who's immensely talented himself and says, great, this guy can handle handle it i'm going to keep throwing everything i can his way and i love a challenge so it's just a good um it's a great working relationship selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's incredible over the years just how much he has evolved and kind of penetrated mainstream culture as well considering what an outsider he is like artistically that's a truly alternative yeah. voice right there and not only obviously has nine inch nails become this hugely successful band but all the you know the film work and the soundtracking that he's done as well like he's right in the middle of hollywood and obviously you know he's got apple uh, or beats whatever the official name of that you know massive company is like he's just killing it isn't he yeah absolutely yeah and uh I mean, I can't think of, I mean, I'd have to really scratch my head to think about who Massive from the 90s is nearly as, as relevant and still continuing to push things forward like he is. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely doing a tremendous job and, and deserves everything he's got. And what's he like as a human, as a dude, as a personality? Do you hang out much? He's a good guy. I mean, we we don't hang out much in the sense of, hey, man, let's go grab some coffee. We, we text every now and then and, you know, geek out about something or, you know, I often ask him for advice about things. But um, obviously on tour or the occasional sort of get together or birthday or whatever it may be, um, he's, a, he's a really good guy. He's a, he's a funny guy. Uh I don't really know what else to say, but uh, I get along with him. Get along with him. Great. What I was saying earlier on about being able to kind of hang with anyone and, and fit in and, and get along. Like, is that a big part of what you do alongside the work ethic and the, you know, the skill set and the talent that you have is a big part of being able to exist as a session musician and to go from band to band and project to project is a big part of that and adaptability when it comes to personality as well. And do you find that you have that? Um, to a degree. I mean, very relevant to our conversation right now uh, is Josh Fries, who's a great example of a very good drummer who has a very extroverted personality. And I'm sure that has been a tremendous asset to him throughout his career. And he probably has the most uh, illustrious session career, certainly of the last I don't know, 20 years or so. I mean, the guy's been in, in demand for a very long time. And the, and the sure, range of projects as well is wild, isn't it? Exactly. And, and I'm sure, and this is not taking away from his drumming by any means, but I am certain that his outgoing personality has been um, nothing but a help in that regard. Now, me personally, um, I definitely have 
you know, I'm a sociable enough guy, but I'm nothing like that. I mean, as we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation, I'm very introverted. Now, I'm not saying I'm socially awkward by any means, but I mean, that guy has a very animated, friendly personality. I'm the kind of guy where you got to get to know before I start opening up, you know, and I suppose my versatility as a drummer is certainly what has been able to secure and hang on to whatever it is I've been doing, whether it's Nine Inch Nails or Angels or the other sessions that I've done. And those have been a lot of fun. I mean, I, what I will certainly say is that being an asshole is not going to get you very far. I mean, there are plenty of people who are fine musicians, but their personalities, their lack of professionalism, and their just outlook on general life are constantly going to be getting in their way. And those people can't be helped. You know, it's, it's, it's a shame. So, um, yeah, I mean, personality helps with everything, whether we're talking about music or not. I mean, if you have to be easy to get along with, because I think what may be a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow is it doesn't matter how good you are. Obviously you have to be good enough and there are plenty of people who are good enough, but it's surprising. It may be surprising to people to know that some people are willing to take a hit on proficiency and quality if they genuinely like the person and hanging out with the person more, you know, especially if it's not, I mean, think about how many bands break up because guys can't stand each other. Right. But these are members of bands. They, there's a a sort of chemistry that have created something. So to think if you can't stand a guy who is literally hired to be there, you're gone. Yep. You know, so you have to be prepared. You have to, nail whatever it is that you're doing and you certainly have to be likable you don't have to be you know jumping off the walls captain personality but you gotta you gotta just you know know who you're hanging out with and and be cool especially when um, you're on tour as well you got to bring that positive energy haven't you for those long stints on the road absolutely and uh there's nothing worse than being stuck on tour with somebody you can't stand and i'm sure we've all been there i've certainly been there and uh it sucks you know it sucks but it happens to almost everybody i mean i'd be shocked if it hasn't happened to to the vast majority of people i think a big thing as well is like a lot of people like to have fun cut loose you know when you introduce like drugs and alcohol into the mix as well the quality dips Mm. and so obviously you've always had a handle on that it's like yeah this is fun but i'm here to work i'm not here to mess about Exactly. And there's nothing I can't stand more than people who don't appreciate the position they're in. And let's say don't perform well because they had too much fun or don't take it seriously enough or people who take their their current position for granted. I can't stand that. It, it drives me absolutely insane. And uh, because certainly popular music isn't something that's dependent on, on skill, you have a whole wide range of of acts who are very popular who some of them can't even hold a tune some of them can't play instruments and they've achieved a tremendous amount of success and good for them but it's often those kinds of people who take their very cushy situations for granted and will eventually get smacked in the face with reality and um like I said, it's there's nothing more grating to me than somebody who's unappreciative of where they are and doesn't put in the effort to help sustain their success or you know build upon it. 
stay humble or be humbled, as they say. <laughs> exactly. That that is that's a saying. There you go. Absolutely. I like that. So here's something that strikes me about you, Alan, and I want you to take this compliment on the chin. I don't know how good you are at taking compliments, but it's quite Try me. it's quite an outrageous level of talent you're in possession of because often when you've got a multi instrumentalist virtuoso, there's there's usually one thing they can't do. You know, often it's the drums. It's like I can do the guitars, the bass, I can sing, I can do all of that. I'm just going to have to get some drummers in. Or it's the vocals, you know. It's like I can play every instrument under the sun, but I'm going to have to get some guys in to do the singing for me. Now, you, with the new regime, not only play everything and write everything and record everything, but there's just this amazing voice that you have as well. Um, which is entirely unique, entirely your own, entirely proficient. And I was listening to the latest New Regime album again today in the lead-up to this chat, Heart, Mind, Body and Soul, which came out in its you know full form earlier this year. And it's just outrageous, dude. I was like, this guy's off the scale. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you like the music. I'm, I'm very proud of that album in particular. And yeah, thank you. It's wild. Like, was there always, like, drums was first, and then I guess you progressed uh, as your brothers probably, like, began playing other instruments. You probably started messing around with those as well. Did you always That's know exactly you could sing? That's exactly what happened. No. In fact, I forced myself to sing. Right. But uh, you certainly nailed it on the head in terms of when I got to the drums, my brothers went on to other instruments, and I then began picking those up as well. I mean, <laughs> I didn't do anything but play drums for the first four or five years but when i picked up the guitar and learned a couple of riffs that same obsessive part of my brain switched on where i thought wow i can do this so i can learn whatever it is that i want to play and i can play it and i just kind of really started taking the guitar seriously at 13 ah the, the piano followed at 15 or 16 i worked the bass in there but it wasn't until 18 years old where I had an epiphany where I thought, what good is it that I can play all of these instruments and I can't do the most important thing, which is sing. So I literally forced myself to sing so that I can write all of my own music, which is obviously what became the new regime. But um, that coinciding with a tremendous amount of frustration working with a band at the time who would take a long time to write and a long time to record and often being the first thing to be tracked as a drummer, I'd be in there for a couple of days and then I'd be gone for months waiting for them to finish up the album. So I just never felt like I was able to be as productive as I wanted to be, which I guess if we're going to be Freudian about it is a common thread throughout my lifetime that is just always in the back of my mind. But that and the epiphany about singing is really what started the new regime. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, it still is a lot of fun. It's just, uh, the vocals were the, the kind of the missing piece. And it's funny because I mean, I'm, I take compliments about my voice the most to heart just because it was the last piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And it's the thing that I hear obviously the most improvements from one album to the next or one performance to the next. So it's always the thing that I'm working on and, you know, writing with. I mean, obviously I'm at the piano or the guitar, but singing to write the song. So it's just, um, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, what can I say? That's how the new regime started. 
There's an element of Rivers Cuomo in your voice, and I say that as a compliment because Weezer are one of my all-time favourite bands, and there, there's, a, oh, there's a similarity there. I mean, do you have vocalists? I'm assuming that he isn't one, but do you have vocalists that you look up to for inspiration as influence? Like, oh, I want to do a bit of what he's doing there or a bit of what she's doing there. Like, who are your, who are your idols when it comes to vocals? I mean, my idols <laughs> as vocalists are nothing that you would be able, be able to hear in my voice. I mean, I the, the thing about the bands that I love is that they influence me across the board as a musician and a singer. But um, I would never, for a split second in time, think that anybody would catch a hint of Freddie Mercury in my voice. I can catch, I I can catch a like hint it. of Freddie Mercury. So the only reason I say oh, that... Come on. No, I can. The only reason <laughs> I say that is that there is a good friend of mine called Stephen Battelle, and he's in a band called Lost Alone. Well, was in a band called Lost Alone. And uh, now, yeah. he, now he just does solo stuff. And he's the biggest Queen fan in the world. And his solo yeah. stuff sounds a lot like the new regime, like the two projects aren't a million miles away. I'll send you some stuff. Mm. And he's the biggest Queen fan ever, and I can hear it in his work just because he's kind of said, oh, this bit's Queen, this bit's Queen. He's kind of schooled me on what's Queen-esque about it. So, ah. when I, so when I heard even your first, the first new regime record, even that, I was like, there's definitely a lot of Queen going on here. So I can. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> but, I mean, I, 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 would, I would explain that as, I can learn, let's say, whether it's uh, Freddie Mercury's style of melody or the Queen's style of harmony, and that can extend itself to the Beatles. You know, what's a McCartney-style melody or a McCartney-style harmony, that kind of thing. I mean, I learned from all those things, and of course those elements make it into the music, but never for a second would I say, ooh, my voice sounds like Freddie or Paul McCartney. I mean, (laughs) I wish I could say that. And that's one thing that is, um, I suppose frustrating about vocals because you can you can improve the instrument that you have but it's still the instrument that you have you know some people have a a massive range some people have a relatively short range or some people have a very clean voice some people have a very gritty voice so when i look at people like freddie mercury or paul mccartney or robert plant i'm just giving you all my favorites here i mean everybody's favorites really but Whereas I can learn a riff like Jimmy Page and kind of mimic the the rhythm or the style, I can't sit there and sound like Robert Plant, you know? It's just, he has that instrument and it's absolute gold. And, uh, you know, the the grit in a voice, I mean, most of my favorite singers have an element of grit. I don't know if it has to do with all the smoking or just their natural voices, but that's something that I constantly wish I could tap into. And, um, you know, I've gotten better at it, but when I first started singing, my voice was just very pristine in a way where I was like, God, I, you know, I, I wish I could push it more. And some people just have that, you know, I mean, Robert Plant had an absolutely explosive voice, you know, and nobody sounds like that. People have tried, uh, up to the very current day, but I mean, these guys just had voices that were so unique and so versatile that they can't be replicated. You know what's cool about that dude as well is he still lives around the same area as me in Birmingham. 
And I was getting mm. the train one day with my dad. We're just at the station. The train pulls in. The doors open. And off the train just steps Robert Plant, as casual as you like, little suitcase in his hand, and he walks past. Mm. My dad didn't recognize him, thank God, because he would have freaked out and embarrassed mm. the hell out of me. But when he was like, <laughs> when he was far enough away, I said, you know that guy who just walked off the train, Dad? He was like, yeah. I was like, that was Robert Plant. He was like, no, it wasn't. I was like, I promise you it was. And I love that, that like the front man in the biggest and best rock and roll band of all time is just riding the train like everybody else. Like, no, no airs of grace, no protection tensions just a down-to-earth dude like despite all of that is just amazing yeah to be the golden god amongst regular folks on the train i mean that's that's definitely definitely something to be admired <laughs> you I, know but yeah i wanted to ask Sorry, you this no? mate um your yeah. your fan base like must be really just an amalgamation of all different kinds of people because you've played in so many massive bands over the years. Like when you're playing a new regime show or just the interactions, which you have with people who follow you online, like who's making up that body of people? Is it a little bit of everything that's come over the years or cause it's always struck me as fascinating people like yourself who've dabbled in so many projects, but still have, you know, always had their consistent own thing going on. Um, your, yeah. your shows must be a really interesting place. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very tough to kind of pinpoint. In some ways, it's very productive. In some ways, it's counterproductive. And what I mean by that is, surprisingly, a lot of people don't put it together in the sense that I am the drummer in these bands or bands that I've played with, and I also do the new regime. And this is comic, but it's true. I mean, a year ago, the new regime was supporting angels and airwaves. Right. I would literally do a set for 40 minutes or so, finish, take off my jacket, <laughs> put in my in-ears, and go play drums. Double and duty. I do double duty. It was a great time. I loved it. And I shit you not, people would be like, man, you look like the singer in the new regime. And they were <laughs> dead serious. And it, I, I, I was baffled by it. But, you know, I don't. it's not like everyone's out there researching so the reason why I say that is, is that let's say if we're looking at, I don't know, followers on Instagram, depending on what it is that I'm posting, I see the people who are either Angels and Airwaves fans or they're Nine Inch Nails fans or New Regime fans, or even going back to when I played with Paramore briefly in around 2013, I think it was, maybe 2012, uh, somewhere around there. 13, you know, that, I think it was the for, self-titled yeah. album you did with them, wasn't it? Yeah, and I recall from that period in time, there was a, an enormous influx of of fans and followers who came in from that. Yeah, because they're a very it, enthusiastic bunch of people, aren't they, Paramore fans? They're yeah, like that kind absolutely. of all-in, full-on, yeah. love it. Yeah, and they're very nice, positive people, and uh, that's been great. But what I find interesting, or what, you know, I, I wouldn't call it frustrating, it's just odd, because... We've just discussed Nine Inch Nails, Angels and Airwaves, Paramore. People know me from these places, and the new regime sounds nothing like either of those bands. Yeah. So at the same time, while these people know of me as a drummer in bands that they're fans of, it's not an obvious switch or or line from either of those bands to the new regime. So you know, I can't even say that all of that piles into 
I mean, there's certainly people who have become New Regime fans, and the the New Regime is one of those bands or or whatever it is that they await new releases for and go to shows for. But it's not like, oh, if you're a fan of this, you are going to like the New Regime. So it's not like a, a one-to-one you know, conversion ratio, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, yeah. But, um, but uh, that's also a big reason as to why I kind of see myself split down the middle as the drummer and then the solo artist. And I kind of don't really relate the two, to be honest with you, at least in my own mind. I get that. It's like one thing is like the job, and you know, obviously the job is you're in fucking Nine Inch Nails, so it's a pretty damn mm. good job. Um, and then I guess with Angels, it's a bit more collaborative and hands-on, but it's still like the job, the work. And then does New Regime almost feel like, I don't know whether you have the phrase in America as well, but like a busman's holiday. Like if you, mm. were, if you ever were going to look at it more as passion and play, then that would be mm. it, the New Regime. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's just uh, it's just an interesting thing where, for example, let's look at Tom. He can have three different bands, whether it's Blank, Boxcar, and Angels, and he is going to have a tremendous amount of commonality within that fan base. You know, he has rabid Angels fans who love all the three acts, or he also has rabid Angels fans who don't like Blank or Boxcar, and then any sort of variation of combinations from one band to the next. But I would not be surprised if, if somebody, obviously I doubt somebody would say this to my face, but I would have no doubt if somebody was like, Hey man, I love what you did on the last angels album. I can't stand the new regime. That wouldn't surprise me because it's so different, you know? So there's no assumption that with whatever I do, it's an automatic bringing of fans from whatever other things I'm affiliated with. So I just very much see it as entirely separate to what I am as a drummer. How did you get on touring with Muse? Because I, I, I can hear a, a little bit of a similarity between the new regime sound and what they do. So I imagine you mm. went over well with their fan base. So supporting people's that, hard that though, great. isn't it? Opening up shows Absolutely. is hard. No matter Absolutely. who you're on the bill with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they definitely had uh, a great fan base. And, you know, it, it is a bit tough to say because I'll tell you what, I played with them in Mexico City and the fans down there are phenomenal. I mean, there's nothing like playing in Mexico City or Latin America. They are just so into whatever it is that they are there to see. And uh, that was a great experience. And then I also supported Muse in Scandinavia for a few dates on the same drones world tour and those shows were awesome as well i mean musically i think it was a great fit certainly the best fit of anybody i've supported but it's definitely a crapshoot with the kind of fans you're playing in front of because there are a lot of bands whose fans show up and want nothing to do with anything but that headlining band and um a surprise to me was unfortunately cut short due to COVID-19, the new regime was out supporting Silver Sun Pickups, and their fans loved the new regime. And it was a very successful tour that was unfortunately cut short, but uh, that worked. And I've had other tours where I have just seen people's faces wanting nothing to do with it. And I can't blame them, because if I went to a show myself, I'm going to show up late to watch the band that I want to watch. You know, I And I know that sounds shitty, but that, you know, I, I'm there to watch. Of course, um, if there was an opener that I was interested in, then great. But I'm not 
the kind of guy who gets there early to find my seat or find my spot and I'm willing to sit through bands that I have no interest in. But for those who are, I can imagine it's hell having to wait a couple of hours watching bands only to get to what you're actually there for. So I, I certainly get it from that perspective. But yeah, it's a bit of a crapshoot as an opener or a support. But um, in terms of how I got those shows, um, I mean, I've, I've been friends with, with Dom, the drummer, for a while. I know he's been a fan of New Regime stuff. I've kind of sent him everything throughout the years, I'd say. And um, I wouldn't say as a result of that, but actually after that, I became pretty good friends with Matt and yeah, I think it was just something that worked out where they were looking for various acts. Uh, Dom probably realized it would be a, a good musical fit and obviously something I'd be appreciative of and something that would be a great help to me. And um, it was all those things. It was a great time. They're a gargantuan band as well. They started out down in Exeter, which is where I went to university. Mm-hmm. And, and when they first yeah. came out, I remember the first single I probably heard from them was Sunburn, the kind of Radiohead style piano song uh-huh. and i was like wow this yeah. is really interesting and then you know a few years later it's like boom these guys are like yeah. on top of the world and yeah su- such like progressive spacey like wild otherworldly rock and roll like it's it's yeah. it's, it's space music isn't it it's like angels and airwaves it's like that kind of mm-hmm. this is of another planet kind of sounds yeah and and they are perfection live especially and yeah their reputation as a live band is beyond 100% deserved. In fact, what pushed me over the edge, because I, I didn't get into them by listening to them, but in, two, in 2006, I watched them play, because it was at uh, Summer Sonic in, in Japan, and they were on later in the evening, and I went to go watch them, and they were so good live that I then went back and discovered the, the catalog. So at that point, it was they were touring on Black Holes and Revelations. So watching them play live and how good they were, that's what made me go back and really digest the entire catalog up to that point. And yeah, I mean, there's probably no better live band on the planet. And uh, yeah, they, they just do a, a tremendous job. I was going to say, you mentioned Exeter, and Exeter always sticks out to me as the yeah. single hottest show I've ever played in my life. <laughs> it, it was at the university. I don't know if it was... Um, yeah, it would have been a venue like called a the Lemon Grove, or... would have been the name of it. It would have been uh, I... on campus. And uh, yep. yeah, it's like by the student bar, and they call it the Lemon Grove, would have been where you played. Uh, I just recall it being so humid in there <laughs> from all the sweaty people that people were sliding like... Where a mosh pit would open up, people were just sliding across the concrete. And I was like, this is disgusting. And it was a fun show, but I was, I was, I was struggling for air at that one. And it always sticks out to me whenever I hear about Exeter. I wonder if I could pick your brain for a couple of stories before I let you go, Alan. This has been an amazing chat as well. I've really, really oh, enjoyed thanks. it. Yeah, Thank you for giving it your time. Um, I wonder yeah. if, if any come to mind of either moments with Trent and Tom or moments on stage or moments perhaps pre-show or after show with fans like is there a tour story from both of those camps that stands out as just like either a wild or a magical or a funny or a crazy or a strange or a memorable moment with with either Nine Inch Nails or Angels Nairways or both one from each 
Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to try my best to answer that. It's just when I get a question like that, my mind kind of goes blank. I know, because it's I'm a just, big open-ended I'm one, cycling. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to cycle through through something. Uh, it's, it's You take your time, very, my friend. It's very difficult. I mean, I always recall first shows. I mean, for example, Nine Inch Nails, obviously – my first time playing with them live was a tremendous experience, but it was a huge kind of career step up. And I recall of all places, we started in Auckland, New Zealand. Right. So it was my first, first time there. We played at Vector Arena, if I recall. And it was one of those shows that was boiling hot. And it was the first time kind of unleashing the new lineup. But that was the first time Nine Inch Nails had ever been a four piece. So, you make it a four piece with a new drummer who's 20 years old. It's kind of, it feels like there's a lot at stake right there, mm. but, um, it was a great show. And I remember, um, Trent the next day coming in saying that there was unanimous praise for the show and it's the math. So that was, that obviously felt great to kind of put in all that work and accomplish something really good there. But, um, it's tough because, you know, when I think about anything else with nine inch nails, I can go through my mind of, knowing what kind of each leg of each tour was kind of vaguely. But, uh, I mean, a funny standout moment, which you've probably seen, and if you haven't, you'll enjoy it. I did have my 21st birthday on stage with Nine Inch Nails, and I don't know if you've seen that video, but it's on YouTube. You'll enjoy that. So basically, I didn't expect Trent to make any mention of it, but he did. And as he's kind of giving this speech about me and 21st birthdays, I feel strippers on either side of my face before I could even see them. <laughs> and they're there dancing to a mashup of Closer and I think 50 Cent, something really funny. <laughs> and next thing I know, they drop a, a giant cake on my head. All of those parkan lights immediately melt the frosting all over my head and hands. And then, of course, Trent, finding the, the moment funny, starts the next song. And I then have to play the rest of the set covered in melted frosting. And it was unbearably difficult to hold onto the sticks. But what was really funny about that in hindsight was because it was my 21st birthday, my parents flew out and they wanted to celebrate with me. I mean, catching me at different points of the globe for shows is my parents' idea of vacation. So they're kind of always catching up in one city or another. And they were there. And obviously the crew and everybody knew what the plan was, but when they saw my mom there, they they felt a little, oh shit, we hope she doesn't hate this, but we've got this whole thing planned. So they went up to my dad and explained to everything to him. And he was like, don't you worry about her. She's going to love it. And they just found it hilarious. And it was a great celebratory moment. And obviously that sealed itself as my most memorable memorable birthday to date. So that was that was a great time. Dude, that's, uh, that's of, amazing. Uh, that's amazing that, you know, I mean, anybody who thinks that like road crew and, and, and rock and rollers, you know, sometimes they get a bad reputation. But, you know, moments like that prove that a lot of the guys who are in that world are nothing but like cordial and respectful. And I love yeah, that absolutely. moment when it's like, oh, there's a parent or a family member here and they always go out of their way to like show respect to those people and look after them and take care of them. And I love that about the touring community. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Angel's pretty much the same thing. You know, I can re- I can run through all of the, the memories in mind, 
But um, I'd really have to sum up the last tour we did where the new regime was supporting is something great that that has happened with that band just because it was great doing double duty. But aside from that, the, a, a lot of the fans knowing that I was both the singer in the new regime and the drummer in Angels and Airwaves, for those in the know, were obviously very receptive. But it was such a great uh, looseness of doing a set and then all going on stage as a drummer in Angels and Airwaves and already feeling entirely warmed up and entirely at ease and just having a great time playing. And nightly on that tour, Tom and I would do a, a duet where I'd come up to the stage, to the front of the stage and, and play one of the songs, finger picking on guitar. And he would obviously sing, but every night he'd come up with some ridiculous fictional story about him and I, you know, from one day traveling jungles together or, climbing mountains in the nude, you know, whatever Tom's humor is. And I'm sure you're well aware of it. <laughs> and night after night, he would come up with these ridiculous stories that would crack me up as I'm trying to play guitar for the song. So it was just a great tour, probably about five or six weeks that pretty much entirely sold out. We had to add a whole extra week in the, uh, in Southern California at the end of it. And it was, it was just a great experience. So I think those two, would be my uh, the stories that come to mind. The amazing moments and and what a life, hey, blessed. Yeah, yeah, definitely appreciative of it. What do you think about the the next eighteen months? Let's say eighteen months, because this year's kind of you know it's obviously a write off. Do you hold hope to be back on stage in twenty twenty one, or or do you think that this is going to go on for a while longer and we're going to just have to bunker down and and ride this out for you know as long as as long as we have to, however long that is. Well, regardless of what we think, we will have to just hold out until it's done. But I do hope that hopefully by summer or late next year, I'm holding my breath for um, the UK or Europe, really. I mean, I get excited when I see Reading announcements and that sort of thing. Obviously, a ton of festival, every festival has been canceled or postponed. But like I said, I'm hoping. Uh, that would be really great to kind of get back to some degree of normality. I wouldn't be surprised if we're holding out for a while. But aside from that, I'm spending a lot of time and effort in the studio writing new material. I'm really trying to get a foothold in the scoring world. Nice. And I have been studying quite a bit from orchestration to sound design. And it's something I've always wanted to do. But this is one of those silver linings where I've been given a... a a good amount of time without any real deadlines to be held up against. So I've been able to spend a lot of the time learning things that I have felt I would be good at. And it, it's been a very productive period, you know? So that's, that's what I'm setting myself up for in, in the new year. Is that next for you then? That's the next step is producing. Could you see yourself doing that? You've obviously got all the skills kind of there. The foundations are there. That seems like a logical yeah, I, extension of what you're already doing, right? Yeah, I could uh, see myself doing that, and I'm certainly preparing myself for it. I'm just the kind of person who likes to lay as much groundwork and be as prepared as possible before stepping into a situation. So I'm just filling with filling my mind with as much as I possibly can, and that'll that'll be it, really. And and what's great about these things, whether it's production or composing, is you know how much downtime there is on tour, especially if 
you're in a cushy situation like Nine Inch Nails. I mean, you literally do nothing until you play at nine <laughs> o'clock at night. So you have all this time to really remain productive, whether it's creatively or just churn things out for, for whatever it may be. So I've really wanted, like I said, to get into these other fields for a while now, but this has been the time where I can really put in the work. So um, yeah, I think next year will certainly be interesting. And I'm still trying to make the most of this year. I know there's going to be a re-release of Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul because um, just like your birthday, it came out right before COVID, right. which means that the album, in terms of an exciting new release, died a very quick death. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the album's great. I'm extremely proud of it. So I think I it's think great it's, as well, mate. I absolutely loved it. Thank you. So, yeah, I just I think it's deserving of a little more attention. So we're going to do a re-release with some songs, some bonus material, and do that whole thing. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely not slowing up in any way, regardless of not being able to play live. I'm just making the most of, of everything I possibly can. And what about the wedding? Will that be next year, or are you going to hold off till you can kind of have a proper celebration with all your friends and family? <laughs> Oh, that is, that is still a conversation that needs to be had with uh, my fiance Sam. With the boss. Just because, <laughs> yeah, the boss. Yeah, we've just, um, we've had this, this tough thing where we want to try to find a pocket sooner than later. Obviously, that's dependent on this pandemic. But at the same time, if, if we reach a degree of normality and we start touring Europe or the UK by summer, then that obviously kind of, cuts off the entire second half of the year so we're trying to find a window where there's a probability that it may work and but at the same time nobody knows anything right now so it's just it's just a tricky time and there's nothing that can be done about it other than accepting that these are strange times i mean what else can you do yeah, my best friend Joel got married like two weeks ago in Ireland and the only people who were at the wedding, because they were the only people allowed, was his immediate family and, and his wife's immediate family and they're on their honeymoon in Ireland as we speak. And I was gutted because I was like, it's my best friend, one of my oldest friends in the world and I had to watch him get married like just over Facebook Live. They streamed it from the church, the vicar did through, through his page. So it was a super, like it was still a beautiful moment. I was really happy for my friend, but I was like, oh man, I want to be there with you and that's kind of the reality of of what this year is which is just it's madness but you know i think as long as we're here and we've got our health and we're happy and we've got our friends and our family then there's still a lot to be to be grateful for and thankful for and excited about yeah absolutely i mean like i said for those who are healthy for those who have patience i mean there is a a gift of time that's been given i've certainly tried to look at it that way and it's it's worked out in terms of finally getting to things that I've wanted to do for a long while now. And I hope or wish that uh, a lot more people would see it that way because there's nothing that can be done about it. It will obviously pass. Everything will get back to normal. But uh, it's one of those things. You can have people who wish they had more time on their hands and the second they have more than they can handle, it's it's the worst thing. Yeah, You know, but um, there's always something to do. Amen to that, dude. Well, listen, I have the utmost respect for your work ethic. I'm in complete oh, awe so much. of your talent and uh, just what an amazing career in life you've had already. And, uh, you know, there's still many, 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 many more things to be achieved and seen and done. So um, the future's yours, my well, friend. Thank you, Alan. I really enjoyed this, mate. 
Thank you so much. Likewise, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for the time. I'll be seeing you. I'll see you in the new world. All right. Uh, all right, buddy. <laughs> Sounds good. Take S- care. Take care, mate. Nice one. See you in a bit. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.